Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to, uh, to Grace for the Middle of a series right now that we call The Creation of Christmas. And uh, through the series, we're kind of trying to get like the epic view of Christmas, kind of beginning the end. And so we started all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, the Garden of Eden. And uh, we talked about the what, what was Christmas created for. We talked about uh, humanity falling into sin, God kind of rushing in immediately and promising Christmas. And then uh, last week when we talked about the why, why would God do all that? Well, he, he's, he's Emmanuel. He wants to be with us. He's not against us. He's for us. And uh, this weekend, I want to walk you through like the how. How do I land all this in my life, in my family room? And uh, what am I supposed to, uh, to do with it? So if you've missed those conversations, you go out online, go to our website, graceohio.org. Uh, you can listen to them there. You can watch them there. You get a podcast for free. Everything's free uh, there. But go grab that. You kind of get to speed a little bit. And uh, it'll, you'll like it. Maybe you're driving somewhere for Christmas. And wouldn't you love to have this soothing voice with you all the way, right? If I didn't do this, I'd be an overnight DJ. Um, but uh, grab that and uh, be up to speed, and you'll, <laughs> you'll, uh, you'll like it. Uh, I want to talk about the, uh, the how. What do you do with it? So a big part of Christmas is gifts, right? Gifts. So we all like know about this. So gifts, we talk about a lot. You've been shopping. If you didn't know that gifts was a big deal and you're married, just go ahead and call and set up your counseling appointment because you're dead meat. But uh, we've been doing all this stuff, and it's, it's a big part of what we focus on. And that's, uh, that's great. Gifts are a good thing. In fact, Jesus said it's better to give than receive. And that's in the Bible. And so it's true. And uh, what I found is that the older I get and the more mature I get, the more I enjoy the giving as opposed to the getting, right? So if you're all keyed up about what you're going to get, you're just immature. That's your problem. But if you're about what you're going to give, then that, that's kind of what happens. And so you know this, you, you get more excited about watching the kids light up than you do about your boxer shorts that you're going to get, you know, kind of thing. Uh, maybe you love somebody who's in need and you're able to give to them. That's actually more fulfilling to the heart than getting something, right? And so that's all actually in the, in the Bible. Jesus says that. And uh, giving and the gifting of that gift is a, is, a, is a big, big deal. My kids always harass me because my kids are, uh, most of them are little still, and they'll say, Dad, we never know what to buy you because you just go buy whatever you want. I'm like, that's right. So Daddy got money. <laughs> you, know, you don't got money. And I feel that way. It's like, if you're going to buy me a present, I'm going to give you my money for you to go buy me something for myself so why should I wait? I'll just go get it myself, and we'll call it Christmas. I don't care, right? And so that's what happens, because it's not, it's not the giving, it's not, it's not the getting, is what I meant to say, that is as, as exciting as the giving at this stage of life. It's more fun, it's more blessed to give than receive, and that's all true, kind of, right? So there's giving of a gift is one dimension of the gifting process. Right? We agree with that? So when we think about gifts, we tend to think one-dimensionally. I'm going to give this gift to someone. Giving is half of an equation when it comes to gifts. So when I give something, it only really is a gift if it's received on the other side. If I try to give a gift that's not received, then what I've done is I've made an offer. I haven't actually given 
a gift because a gift kind of becomes a gift when it's received, right? There's this whole process. There's this exchange that takes place. And until both of those dimensions kind of come together, we wouldn't really think of it as a gift. The reception actually, in, in some ways, especially relationally, is more critical than, than the offer. That, that's why we receive things we don't like, right? So if it, when your grandma knits you like, you know, knitted underwear, and she's like, it's for you, and you're like, thanks, grandma, you take it. You're not going to wear it, right? You just don't want to hurt her feelings because the more someone invests themselves in that offer, the more that they give of their time and their energy or their money or their thought, the more painful it would be if the offer wasn't accepted, if it was rejected, right? So just think of, it, think of, you, think of yourself as an artist. Say you're an artist and you wanted to give me a gift. And so you were going to create a bronze statue of me, right? I think shirtless, by the way, would be the way to go. I mean, the, the more beauty, the better, you know what I'm saying? So we're going to put a bronze statue up in my front yard for all of my neighbors to enjoy. And I would uplight it too, by the way. But we would, right, we would do that. If you spent time and energy and creative energy and money and effort, and you were like, here is this gift that I kind of poured myself into, and you gave it to me, and I was like, yeah, that's great. What's the scrap metal value on that? Could you just give me the money? What do you want for Christmas? A gift card, right? Anyone who asks for a gift card should be smacked, right? <laughs> Why? Because it takes no thought. It takes no energy. There's there's no expression of love. So the more that you put into that, the more painful the rejection of that is because gifting is a two-dimensional thing. There's an offer and there's a reception. And that's true relationally, of course, and then it's completely true. In fact, it's life-death kind of true spiritually. There's this gift, the gift of God the gift, the offer of Jesus Christ, the gift of the gospel, which is the salvation of Jesus Christ, the news of that, it's offered, but is it fully a gift until it's received? Kind of, sort of, you know what I'm saying. Unless it's received, then the exchange hasn't taken place. The power of the gift doesn't really lock in. Even though it's out there, the one that it's offered to must receive it. And receiving is huge, right? It's a huge part of our interaction with God. In fact, I'll say it's the key to our interaction with God. It's not just that God offered his son. It's not that he just offered salvation. It's that I received it. It's how it has to land for me personally. So you can have all the stuff in Genesis and all the truth. You can have Emmanuel, God with us, coming down, putting skin on, but if I don't bring him into my heart, my life, if I don't kind of give him unfettered access to myself, then it stands as an offer and less as a gift because the exchange hasn't actually taken place and I haven't received what God wanted to give me. Now, I think there's three things that keep us from receiving from God. And we've talked about this a little bit. If you've been around grace the last few months, talk about it a little bit, but I want to dig into this today. So there's three things. This, these are emotional, spiritual. It's all kind of the same thing. It's just part of our humanity. 
But there, there's three things that kind of keep us from receiving from God or from people or whatever. Here they are. Number one. Number one is my, my self-sufficiency. My self-sufficiency. So when God looks and says, hey, there's a gift. I want to offer you salvation. My son is a savior. He's a rescuer. He's a redeemer. He's your way of escape. And when I reject that offer, put a barrier up at that offer, I'll put a, the barrier of self-sufficiency. It's me looking back at God and saying, hey, you know, God thinks, but I got it. I got it. Yeah, I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to go to church. I'm not going to smoke, drink, chew, date girls who do, cheer for Michigan, Michigan State, anything in Michigan, right? I'm not going to recognize it as part of the country, right? I'm going to get my act together, so, but thank you, I'll handle this. Self-sufficiency. And self-sufficiency in any relationship is a barrier to receiving. A second barrier is self-condemnation, self-condemnation. And self-condemnation is a very subtle thing, and I actually believe it's one of the things we struggle with the most in our relationship with God, and this is self-condemnation. Jesus saying, I love you, and I love you unconditionally, and self-condemnation is me on any level saying, I'm not sure I believe that. I, and it, could, it could be things like, well, you, why would you love me? Look at what I've done. Look at my life. I'm unlovable. Self-condemnation is nobody loves anybody unconditionally. You know what, God? So I hear that, but I don't trust it, so I'll just keep trying to be a good person. Anything that says, I'm not worthy of that, so, eh, and it's a barrier to our relationship with God. The third one is self-centeredness, self-centeredness. And self-centeredness usually plays out as a lack of trust. So you don't have to be a jerk to be self-centered. You know, jerks tend to be self-centered, but you don't have to be a jerk to be self-centered. All you have to do is this. You have to look and say, I have a need that God can meet, but I don't trust that God will meet it, so I'm going to demand that you meet it for me. So I feel insecure God will provide me with security. He'll give me worth. I don't trust that. I'm going to manipulate you to tell me how awesome I am. I need, I need uh, fulfillment. I need joy. God will give me joy. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit. He'll give me joy. I don't trust that. So I'm going to manipulate you, wife, husband. You better make me happy or I'm walking. I'm going to find somebody else who does. See? It's a self-centered thing. It's, I don't trust what God's going to do for me. So I'm going to look and I'm going to make you do for me what God said only he could do for me. And those are barriers, self-sufficiency, self-condemnation, and self-centeredness. Now, you don't have to be a jerk to struggle with that. All you have to be is human. So the Bible says we're all born this way. We're born into sin. We're born out of sync with God. And the Bible says that that's why... Jesus came. That's why the gift was offered. That's why he lived on earth. That's why he died on the cross. That's why he rose again, to be with us, to meet these needs. But when I lean into my self-sufficiency, my self-condemnation, my self-centeredness, I fail to receive what God is offering to me, right? And one of the things I love about the Bible is the Bible's full of ordinary people, so the people in the Bible, for the most part, aren't like these saints that have halos on them. They're just normal folks going through their, their version of their normal life. So I like to think this. Anybody in this room could have made the Bible. Anybody could have made the Bible, right? Because these were normal people 
living their version of a normal life, and God shows up in their life in an extraordinary way. And that's true of the Christmas narrative. Mary, Joseph, the shepherds, all those fellows, just normal folks living their version of a normal life. Whatever, whatever they were doing is what they were doing. And God showed up in a powerful way in their life, and they had to decide what to do with that. Because they were human beings, they struggled with these barriers of receiving from God. So they struggled with self-sufficiency, self-condemnation, self-centeredness, right? And it would have, could have tempted them to block the gift that God was trying to give them. And we're going to look at Joseph, we're going to look at Mary here today, because I love it. You see their humanity, you see these temptations rolling in their head, and then you see them have victory over it, the same victory that you and I can have over it, and you see them actually receive from God what he's kind of striving or willing to give to them, okay? So let's look at it. Let's look at Joseph first. So grab your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter one. Matthew chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, there's some there in the chairs. You can use those. It's page 675 in those Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible or a newer one, just keep that one. Make it yours. Electronic folks, we use the Version app. So you can open that up, hit live, and our zip code is 44333. Verse 18, chapter 1, Matthew. This is where you kind of get introduced to Joseph for the first time. Verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Let's just pause there for a second. Let's get our kind of heads around the humanity of Joseph, okay? So Joseph, in the ancient world, the average age that a man got married in the ancient world was about 20, about 20. So give or take a few years on either side, about 20. So we're, gonna, we're just going to call Joseph 20 years old. Okay, so he's a 20-year-old guy. He's a working man. So he was, uh, he's probably a carpenter because Jesus was one. You learned your trade from your father in the ancient world. So he's a carpenter, working guy, was a builder for a living, young man, and he's ready to get married and wants to marry uh, Mary, right? So in the ancient world, when you wanted to get married, you first had this period of engagement, and engagement wasn't like it is today. It wasn't like the, the time that was romantic, that you kind of hung out and planned the wedding and tried to get your parents to pay for it. In the ancient world, engagement was actually a legal contract because in the ancient world, you didn't meet your wife and fall in love. You purchased her. You bought her from her family. So somewhere along the line, Joseph went to his dad and said, hey, I want to marry Mary. His dad went to Mary's dad and said, hey, my son wants to And they arranged a marriage. And that marriage was a legally binding contract that involved the exchange of money. A lot less romance, a lot more business transaction. During that time, the groom-to-be and his family would start to make uh, the financial payment for the wife. So the engagement was like a layaway program. You would pick one out and put her over here, and then you'd make your monthly payment on her, right? 
And that's kind of the way that it worked. And so it's a legal business transaction. It wasn't that romantic. In fact, the husband-to-be and the wife-to-be weren't actually around the, allowed to interact with each other that much. So they, they really didn't hang out. They weren't going on dates. They weren't going to see the new Hobbit movie. They weren't doing those kind of things. They were separated, and there was zero sex, zero. In fact, it was against the law to be sexually active between the two of them. And if either one of them during this time were sexually active with somebody else, outside of their betrothed, right? It was considered adultery. And in the ancient world, adultery was punishable by death. And you had four options of the way that you could die. You'd walk over, here is our execution department, and we have several things on special this week. You can be hung, you can be stoned, you can be burned, or you can be beheaded. You can get a stoning and a beheading. If you buy one, you get the other at half price. And so you, that was your options. So th this is a huge deal. If you have sex with somebody else, you, it's a death penalty potentially, right? Definitely the breaking down of a legal contract. It's a big, big deal. So when Mary shows up and says, I'm pregnant, by who? The Holy Spirit. This is huge. This isn't just like a broken heart and some dashed dreams. This is a big, big, big deal. It's a life and death situation. Now, I believe that Mary and Joseph loved each other. I think the way that you see him respond to her, and you put that in contrast with the way he could have interacted with her. So even if they loved each other, even if Joseph fell in love with Mary and vice versa, they would have still gone, he would still gone to his dad, his dad would have gone to her dad, and they still would have made this arrangement, okay? So Joseph has this major dilemma on his hands. Now, the Bible tells us a few things about Joseph. One of the things it tells us here is in verse 19, that he, her husband, because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law. One of the things that we know about Joseph is that he was faithful to the law. What does that mean? That means that he was a practicing conservative Jew in the ancient world. So he was faithful to the Jewish law. He would have gone to the temple. He would have been kind of educated, been a faithful part of kind of that church community there. He would have been faithful to the tenets of the law. So he would have practiced morality. He was seeking to keep his marriage and his relationship with Mary pure. He would have been a man of integrity, right? So his reputation would have been that. If, you, if somebody looked and said, hey, uh, you, ever, you ever hire Joseph to build your table? Yeah, do a good job. Mm -hmm. Fair price, yep. Rip you off? Nope, okay. Right? By the way, ladies, that's kind of how men talk, right? That's the depth of our conversation. I just described a deep conversation between two guys. But he would, have been, he would have been known that way, right? A man of integrity, a man that kept the law, a man that kept the Sabbath, a man that went to the temple, a man that wanted to raise his good... He was faithful to the law, okay? And I believe that he loved Mary. I think the Bible hints at that pretty strongly when it says he's faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace. He could have, but he didn't want to. When Mary shows up and says, I'm pregnant, Joseph has a huge dilemma. He's got two bad options. Option number one is 
he can expose her to public disgrace. He can look at Mary, and he can say, hey, she got herself pregnant. I didn't do it. I'm divorcing her. And he could have turned her over to a minimum of shame, to a maximum of a death sentence. He didn't do that. His other dilemma was this. His other option was, well, I go ahead and marry her. If I marry her, everybody's going to assume I got her pregnant. And my reputation is one in which I am faithful to the law. So if I marry her, kaflush, there goes my reputation and my character and the things that I have built my business and my life and my family's name off of. So I can expose the one that I love to all of these unspeakable penalties, or I can flush my life. I don't have a good option here. And so what does Joseph do? He does what any 20-year-old guy would do. He stares at the ceiling. He thinks about it. He worries about it. And look at it. He had in mind to divorce her quietly. What does that mean? It means he came up with a plan. Okay, I, I don't want to ruin her life. You know, if I do this quietly, then, then maybe her, she can move in with her mom and dad, and maybe they can, they can move away, because they'd have to move away because they lived in Nazareth. Nazareth is this little town. Nazareth is the Doyle's town of the Middle East, right? <laughs> so I'm going to divorce her quietly. Maybe she can go over to Wadsworth, blend in. Nobody will ever know, Right? <laughs> This is, this is the way he would have thought. Divorce her quietly. I don't want to destroy her life. I don't want her beheaded. And I don't want to flush my reputation. So if I divorce her quietly, she can move away. Maybe people would just think that her husband died, which is common. And then I'll, I'll stay here in Doylestown, and people will kind of forget that we were together, and I'll start making payments on another wife, and... Makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? And that's very human of Joseph. Self-sufficient, a little bit of self-centered. Remember, you don't don't have to be a jerk to be self-centered. You just have to get your needs from somebody else instead of from God. And he would have, I would have done this. Would you have done this? I would have totally done this. Because it made sense. It was logical to everything that was human around him. And this is what Joseph had in mind to do. And then this very normal guy, God shows up in his life in a very powerful way. Verse 20, chapter 1, after he had considered this, thought about it, laid it out, decided this is what he's going to do, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son. And you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, catch this, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do and took Mary home as his wife, but he did not consummate their marriage until after she gave birth to to a son. And he gave him the name Jesus. And guys, you see this shift. You see a very normal person with very human temptations. I'll handle it. I'll just work it out. I'll kind of blame Mary a little bit. I'll kind of make it go away. Everything that makes sense. 
and you see him respond to a loving God who is leading him down a path that he never expected to go down. You see him set aside self-sufficiency and set aside self-centeredness. And he, instead of saying, you know what, I don't really want to be Joseph, right? I want to make, make some guy named Steve be in the Bible. I don't want this problem. I didn't ask for this problem. I'm just trying to, like, make a living, okay? Instead of that response, you see him with humility because the antidote to self-sufficiency is humility. He took Mary. What does that mean? He took Mary. What does that mean? Flush. Everybody thought Joseph got her pregnant. Everybody thought that. I set aside my rights. I laid down my reputation, and I did it in response to God. And he set aside his self-centeredness. Instead of, well, I kind of blame Mary and you know, the Holy Spirit. Who's ever heard of him? And, right? I went, okay, God, I'll take her. She's my wife. We won't even consummate this deal. When the baby shows up, I will give him the name that you told me to give him. See, a normal person that's going to struggle the exact same way that you and I are when God shows up in our life and wants to lead us down a path we didn't expect. And Joseph, the reason why he's kind of a hero to us, right, is not because he was super saint. It's because he was trusting humble guy, and he received from God a gift, right? He received it, not just the offer. He actually said, I'm going to set aside these barriers. I'm going to engage what God is offering to me. And the story is what the story is. And aren't we glad that Joseph responded that way, right? Now, there's Mary, too. So let's look at her for a second. Go over to Luke chapter 1. Just flip Matthew, Mark, Luke, <clears throat> chapter 1, and you find Mary, and here's Mary. Mary is a very normal human being. Mary is, is not sinless. The Bible never teaches that, okay? Mary is a normal human being who responded to God in a very powerful way, but she would have been tempted in the exact same ways that you and I were tempted, right? You could be in the Bible. Instead of Mary, it's like Brittany or something like that, right? It's, it, can totally, it could totally be that way because she is just living her life. God shows up, chapter 1, verse 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Elizabeth was Mary's cousin, and she was pregnant with what, who we would know as John the Baptist. John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, okay? So... In the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, back to Doylestown, right? A town in Galilee to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, greetings, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at, the, at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him a throne, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. 
how can this be, Mary asked, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One will be born, will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left here. So you have Mary, you have this normal girl from a small little town, maybe a peasant, probably like a working class family. Here's the deal. In the ancient world, the average woman got married between the ages of 12 and 14. Between 12 and 14. So we'll split it and we'll just say Mary was 13. Okay? You have a 13-year-old girl. You have a seventh grader. And God shows up. I guess she was deeply troubled at his words. Right? It would freak her out. Why? Because she's just living life. She's, I think they love you, Joseph. So she's probably looking forward to getting married to Joseph. Met this great guy. He's faithful to the law. He's full of integrity. He's a carpenter, a good, hearty guy, right? It's all cool. She might be looking forward to being married. She's young. She's probably nervous about it. You have a seventh grader. And God shows up and says, hey, by the way, uh, you're going to get pregnant. I'm a virgin. Oh, don't worry, the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a miracle. And you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Fantastic. You know. <laughs> think, think about the way, just think about it. How does a seventh grade girl think? See? Is she afraid? Of course she's afraid. Is she confused? Well, of course. You remember being in the seventh grade? When you got in trouble or something happened to you in the seventh grade, what would you do? You would lean into your humanity, right? It's self-sufficiency. Oh, man, I got to cover this somehow. How do I hide being pregnant? That still happens, doesn't it? Self-condemnation is a big one. The seventh grade girls tend to blame themselves for whatever happens to this. Oh, man, did I, did I do something to deserve this? Because this isn't happy, happy, joy, joy for Mary. Does Mary know the consequences of adultery? Oh, you better believe it. She's got burning, hanging, stoning, beheading on her mind. Does Mary know the consequence? What's she gonna, how am I going to tell my parents? What am I going to say to Joseph? What, I'm going to look somebody in the eye and tell them the Holy Spirit got me pregnant? It's a miracle? Rejoice with me? And you would have seen all of the human tendencies kick in. Self-sufficiency, right? I got to hide this. Self-condemnation. What did I do to make this happen? Self-centeredness. Maybe I can blame Joseph. I can blame. You better believe all of those things ran through a 13-year-old girl's mind. And yet, why do we celebrate Mary? We don't celebrate Mary because she was sinless. We celebrate Mary because she was faithful. And she was able to lean into and trust the heart and the mind of a God that she trusted loved her. And you see this transformation in her in the same chapter. So this happens. Mary goes. She hangs out with her cousin Elizabeth. Now, 
Elizabeth is also miraculously uh, pregnant, but she's an old woman. That was the miracle. Everybody thought she was too old to get pregnant. So that's the miracle. Mary's a 13-year-old girl. So she goes and she interacts with Elizabeth. Elizabeth's kind of a neat subpoint we won't get into, but kind of comforts her, reassures her, and emboldens her. It's neat the way that God used her cousin in her life. Verse 45, Elizabeth says to her, blessed is she who believes that the Lord would fulfill his promise to her. She sees this positive. She affirms that it's a miracle. You see Mary lean into God, start to shift her perspective, have victory over this temptation, and what once was something that was self-sufficient or self-condemning or self-centered becomes something that she's grateful for. Look at verse 46, and Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of, his hum- of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Mary shifts. Why? She leaned into God. God shows up in her life and says, hey, I want you to do something that's really weird. I'm going to interact with you. I'm actually never going to interact with another human being on the face of the earth this way. It's just you. You're blessed beyond other, all other women. You are the woman. You are the 13-year-old that gets to carry the Son of God and give birth to him. And Mary would have been scared and panic, panicky and unsure and self-condemning and all those things that a seventh-grade girl is going to struggle with. And you see this shift. And instead of self-sufficiency, you see humility. Instead of self-centeredness, you see trust. And what you really see here screaming through those verses is instead of self-condemnation, you see gratitude. Instead of, why me, God? What did I do? It's looking and saying, God, thank you. I mean, my life just blew up, but I'm trusting you. Thank you. I receive the gift that you're offering to me. So gifts are always two-dimensional. There's an offer, right? And those offers are always going to get entangled in our humanity. Do I really need to take that thing? I'm self-sufficient. I'm self-condemning. I'm self-centered. And then there's the reception. It's It's the rest of the equation of a gift. That's given. That's fascinating. The Apostle Paul leans into this idea a little bit in Romans chapter 5. You can flip over there with me. Romans chapter 5, probably 100 pages or so to the right in your Bibles. Romans chapter 5, he's comparing and contrasting the gift and the trespass. So let me just explain it for a minute. He talks about the trespass. What's the trespass? The trespass is the introduction of sin into humanity. So, so what we talked about it the, the first weekend of this series when we talked to end Genesis. The, the idea that sin comes in. The Bible says that because of sin, I'm spiritually dead. And the Bible says that actually I'm not born a good person. I'm actually born a sinful person. Our sin is the area of our humanity that we have most in common with each other. It's what comes natural to us. So you can say, well, I'm a good person. And the Bible says, actually, you're not. Oh, I really am. No, you're not. Did anybody ever teach you to lie? Did anybody ever teach you to be selfish? Did, did anybody ever, ever teach you to, to be self-centered? No, nobody ever taught you that. Why? Because it's natural. It comes natural to us. It's our sin, right? 
we have to work at the good things. Sin is easy peasy, right? So the Bible says that Adam, when he, when he fell into sin in Genesis, he brought that sin in, and it didn't just mar humanity or mess it up a little bit. It annihilated us. It destroyed us spiritually, so much so that the wages of sin is death. I'm spiritually dead. I cannot make myself spiritually alive. That's why it's kind of crazy to look at God and say, I don't really need a Savior. I'll work it out, right, to be self-sufficient. God's like, what are you talking about? You're dead. You're going to work this out, right? So Paul says the trespass is that. The trespass is that sin came in, and it has reigned. It has annihilated everybody. And it brings with it death and condemnation and spiritual destruction. Verse 15, Romans chapter 5, but the gift is not like the trespass. What's the gift? The gift was first proclaimed in the Garden of Eden right after Adam's sin. The proto-evangelum, it's Latin. It means the first proclamation of the prototype of the gospel. When Adam sinned, God looked at Satan He said, you and I are now at war. He said, this is the way it's going to play, big boy. You are going to bruise my son's heel. You're going to torment him when he's on the planet. You're going to tempt him. You're going to make him to to suffer. You're going to cause him to be mocked. He's going to be crucified. He's going to bleed out. He's going to suffocate in his own bodily fluids on the cross. He's going to go into the grave for three days. Enjoy yourself because he's going to raise again. He's going to crush your head. This is the way it's going to play out. And it's the first time that the gospel is proclaimed. We're dead in sin, but immediately God says there's hope. There's a gift coming. What's the gift? What's well, the baby? See, it's the baby. My son's going to show up, and he's going to show up with skin on. And he's going to be with you, and he's going to live, and he's going to die, but he's going to raise again, and he's going to have victory over sin and death. You lose because the gift... The trespass brought death. The gift is not like the trespass, Romans chapter 5. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Death brings, or the trespass brings death to many. The gift brings life to many. It's the exact opposite, verse 16. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through the one man, how much more, catch this, will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Everybody got death and sin. The gift shows up, and those who receive it get life and justification. Jesus says, I give you life. And I don't just give you life. I don't just like get you out of hell. That's part of it, right? I give you life so you go to heaven instead of hell. I give you life to the fullest. I give you eternal life, and then I I meet all the needs of your life here on earth. Like what? Like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all the things that drive us nuts about our humanity. It's all right there. 
It's all right there, right? Here's the deal. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if there's a gift. Doesn't matter if there's an offer. Well, I believe in Christmas. It's awesome. Doesn't really matter. Well, I believe in Jesus. I'm not Muslim. I'm not a Hindu. I'm not a... That's, that's great. You know, it, doesn't, it just doesn't really matter. Well, I believe in Easter. I mean, I come both services. You know? And, and, that, and guys, that's good. Well-intentioned, good-hearted people believe that. It just doesn't matter if you believe it. It only matters if you receive it. The, 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 the fact of the offer is simply the fact of the offer. Jesus come to earth, yeah. The Bible says, extra biblical history, it's un- nobody denies that Jesus Christ was on the planet. Nobody who's remotely intellectually honest denies that Jesus Christ on the, is on, was on the planet. Nobody. Well, I believe he rose again. Right. Actually, nobody who's intellectually honest denies that he rose again. The Bible is one thing. The extra-biblical history is overwhelming. Nobody denies that. 500 eyewitnesses would hold up in any court of law at any period of time in human history. It's undeniable that Jesus rose again from the dead. Accepting those facts, showing up at church once in a while and having some of that reinforced it can make you a good person. It's not the same as receiving salvation. Jesus, I receive in my soul that you're God. I'm asking for the forgiveness of my sin. I'm giving you unfettered access to my life. I want to follow you. The offer of a gift is only one dimension of gift giving. But if I look at the gift and I say, you know, I got it, God. I'm a self-sufficient person. I got it. Even I look at the gift and say, I don't deserve it, God. That's for somebody else. You know, it's for somebody whose name starts with pastor. Or I look at the gift and I say, yeah, thanks, but you know what? I'm going to make my wife meet my needs. I'm going to get my fulfillment through my kids on the soccer field. Just because it's offered doesn't mean it's received. And it's not, if it's not received, then the exchange hasn't actually taken place. Why is Joseph a hero? Because of the exchange. Why, why is Mary a hero? Why do, why do, we don't honor her because she was sinless. We honor her because she was a stud. Why, why do we honor Mary? Because she was a hero. I mean, good night. If you're going to follow God, look at Mary, right? It's because they received what was offered. It's not because they were there when it was offered. It's because they received. They leaned into trusting humbling themselves with gratitude, believing that a loving God was loving them.
and ask the band to settle in. And, and as they do, guys, can, I, I like to land us here this weekend, okay? Here's the big question. Ready? Have you received Christ as your Savior? Now listen, you can be religious, you can be well that That's me. I was a, a very religious, very well-intentioned, good-hearted person. Went to church all the time. Grew up, started going to church in my mother's womb. No joke. Okay? But I, I never, nobody ever told Told me to receive Christ, to have this relationship, to embrace it fully, to make it my own. That didn't happen until I was, I just talked about it in the lobby with a friend. I was a junior in college. I, I knew the gift. I knew all about it. I knew the Bible. I just didn't, I didn't complete the transaction. Have you ever received Christ? Jesus, would you forgive me for my sins? I'm going to, by faith, I'm going to choose to believe what I do not fully understand. By faith, I'm going to believe that you're God, believe that you lived, believe that you died, and most importantly, believe that you rose again from the dead. And because of that and your love for me, God, I give you unfettered access to my life. So you ask me to do weird stuff that I don't understand or the Bible doesn't make, I'm in, I'm in. Because I trust you and I receive you and I want to follow you. Guys, if you, if you have never done that, then you haven't, ex, you haven't completed the exchange of the gift. There's an offer from God. It kind of becomes the gift when I take it. So I encourage you to do that. You do that right now, right? No magic words. There's no secret prayer. It's not a club you're joining. It, your heart to God's heart. Pray something in your own words like I just said. And commit your life in your own words. God, you have unfettered access, right? And I want to receive who you are. And as you start to lead me, I, we'll kind of work that out as we go. Have you received? Here's the second piece. When I was a junior in college in Philadelphia in a soccer field one night, I received that gift of salvation. Very confident of it. You know what the hardest part about being a Christian is? Being human. Drives me nuts. I know that I'm built like a god of old. But I, I struggle in here and in here. You know what I struggle with? Self-sufficiency, self-condemnation, self-centeredness. And I had to, all the time, I had to go back to God and say, God, I tried to pull that off on my own. Forgive me. I want to be closer to you than that. See, self-condemnation. I have a terrible time believing that God loves me because he, told, because he chose to love me. I have a terrible time believing that because I was raised and told differently. God loves you, but you better get your act together. So to trust that, it's actually hard for me. God and I process that all the time. And self-centeredness, I do this constantly. I'll fulfill you, Jeff. Now, I'm going to make Heidi do it. 
I'm going to control her and yell at her and make her. I'll give you value. Now, I'm going to make the people of the church do it. You better tell me how great I am in the lobby. And I mean that. Right? I'll take the promotion over the relationship with God, right? That works. So in my humanity, and this is what happens, guys, we get all entangled in our humanity. And we will we'll keep God at an arm's length when he's actually Emmanuel. So Christmas is like awesome. I'm grateful we live in a culture that celebrates Christmas. With all of its messed upness, I'm grateful for that. Because when I stop, and I look at the gift, it reminds me that it's not the trespass. God didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came into the world so that he could save us. John 3, 17. And I have to remind myself of that every day. Maybe you've never received Christ. Maybe you're entangled in your humanity. It's all the same. Humility. Gratitude, trust, leaning back in to the heart and mind of our loving God. Would you think about it? Pray about it? Ask God to help you get a new perspective on the creation of Christmas.